This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Thanks for joining me and my co-host, Alicia Jenkins, each week as we discuss a new case. We created this show to honor victims, to tell their story. And by doing that, we can expose the monsters lurking all around us. Welcome back, everyone. Today's episode is one where I worked with the victim's daughter to tell her story. Nikki Wasilishin was able to talk with me a couple of weeks ago and tell me all about her mom. She was so brave to come on here and share her mom's story with me, and we need your help to keep that momentum going. Please share her mom's story. Tell your friends. Tell your family. With that, let's jump right into it. Are you ready? for today's case. On July 9th, 1993, a 911 phone call is made to dispatchers in the Sedona, Arizona area. The call is placed by a man named Russell Peterson, and he says that there has been an accident. Someone has been shot. Russell says on that 911 call that his wife has been shot. To clarify, he was not married to Stephanie Marie Wasilishin. The couple did live together and had been dating for six years at the time of this incident, though. They also did share one daughter, and they were raising two daughters together. The oldest is Nikki, and that's Stephanie's daughter from a previous relationship, and she is the one who brought her mother's case to my attention and is the one that you guys will hear from throughout this episode. Okay, and who are you? I'm Russell Peterson. Okay, are you involved in that? 
and it just kind of went off. That 911 call is placed at 1.40. There is the incident report. You know, it's all over the case file, 1.40 a.m. And he will stay on the phone with 911 for like eight minutes until they arrive on scene. You hear all that. So the good response time and all that. But what I always knew when I when I tagged in two years ago, I knew that if I got the phone bill from my home 30 years ago, I knew that there would be more phone calls before he called 911. I just had a feeling. So when I got my case file, I looked through it. But guess what? There is no phone bill. They denied me discovery. The case file that you also have is missing a couple hundred pages of discovery. Long story short though, my aunt had my uh, uh, grandma's original 93 case file, which had the phone bill. We look at it and he's calling somebody at 1.36 a.m. Four minutes before he calls 911, he calls somebody else. We won't actually know who he calls until this last summer going through my grandma's original case file that's not redacted. We found out who he called. He called his father four minutes before he'll call 911. Why is he calling his father? And your daughter, do you think you are? How old is she? Uh, she's three years old. Okay, then you're going to have to do this. You're going to have to be listening to me on the phone and trying to do it, okay? Well, she needs help. I know, I know. Yeah. And you're okay. We need help real bad. Okay, they are, they are coming, but I need for you to do this for me, okay? Okay, is her head tilted back? If you couldn't hear, Russell says on the phone call to 911 that he needs help. There's been a very bad accident. The dispatcher mistakes this accident as a vehicle crash, asking how many vehicles are involved. But Russell says no, there are no vehicles. Me and my wife, we were in an argument and she's hurt. She's hurt very bad. The dispatcher asks what's wrong with her and Russell says she's been shot. The dispatcher kind of repeats him and just asks, so she was shot? And he says, yes. Okay, so who shot her? And Russell says, um, we were, I, I don't know who. And then the dispatcher is confused. She is asking him, so you don't know who shot her? And Russell says, I might have, she might have shot herself. Which right off the bat, I think this 911 phone call is a bit weird. I do think you would know if you shot someone or if they shot themselves. So it's pretty yeah. easy to know. You should know. Does he try to say they were like in a physical altercation and the gun went off? Yes, at first. And then you'll see as the episode goes on that even his story changes from that to that. So he does end up saying that like, oh, we were struggling over it. But then later on he says, no, like I wasn't even in the room when she shot herself. So you weren't in the room, but you're not sure if you shot her or she shot herself on the 911 phone call. <laughs> yeah, if you weren't in the room, you should know. Yeah, exactly. That it wasn't you. <laughs> exactly. So that phone call right off the bat, I was like, this is a little weird. So following this call, it's around 1.40 a.m. that Officer Brooks, Sergeant Stinson, and Officer Zanet are dispatched to the scene on Coffee Pot Drive in Sedona, Arizona. The call came in following a domestic fight in which one person was shot in the neck. They're en route when they're told Russell was on the phone with 911, performing CPR under the direction of the Sedona Fire Department. 
the officers are there within minutes. By 1.43 a.m., they are entering the home through the front screen door as the primary door is already open. And as law enforcement walks inside, they call out to announce themselves, telling whoever is in the home to come out where they could be seen. Russell emerges from the hallway holding a cordless portable telephone. The right hand he's holding it with is covered in blood and the phone is pressed to his ear as he was still on the phone with 911 at this point. The officers then follow Russell back down the hallway to where the incident transpired, which was in the master bedroom. On the floor near her bed, Stephanie Wasilishin is lying on her back. Her feet face the door that they had come through and her head is pointed to the west. Her head's kind of cocked to the right side, and Officer Brooks notices a large caliber gunshot wound to the upper portion of the left side of her throat. There is a large pool of blood near the right side of her head. But more shockingly, he notices a little girl sitting on the bed. Sergeant Stinson sees the girl point to the woman laying on the floor, and they all hear her say, that's my mommy, which is super sad. So she's sitting on the bed in the room that her mom has been shot. What was the age? This girl is um, Nikki's younger sister, and she was about preschool age. Okay. She is the younger sister, and the the fight woke her up. And um, so she she saw my mom fall to the ground. It's been disputed because she was four on if she actually saw the trigger pull on what she... Because it's, you know, when you're three and you're getting interrogated, you're reading her case file. It's just, it's hard. They're very candid because they don't understand what they've seen. She just kept repeating, Poppy killed mommy. And she does it about 12 times. If you get to the case file and you read her interviews, just get your your tissue ready because you're going to cry a lot when you read my sister's interview. It's heartbreaking. So Officer Brooks looks to Officer Zanet and asks him immediately to remove the little girl from the crime scene. The Sedona police give her a stuffed dog that she carries around with her for the rest of the night as the family is questioned. She would later be identified by the initial CW, which is just how I'll refer to her here as well. And she is the youngest of Stephanie's two daughters. Like I just said, she is in preschool. Quick correction here, I do refer to Nikki's little sister and the youngest daughter here as CW a lot, but after listening back through to my recording with Nikki, I realized that her sister's name is actually spelled with a K, but don't blame me for that. That is because of the police reports. Most all of them spelled her name with a C and then they redacted her name. And so that's why it is the CW who even knows if she did have the same last name as her mom or if she had the same last name as Russell. Honestly, a lot of the police just referred to her in their reports as CW. They were spelling her name wrong. So um, her name is actually spelled with a K when you hear me say that. Officer Zanet also led Russell away from the bedroom at this time. And Russell tells him that there is another girl in the house. Nikki was asleep in a bedroom on the opposite side of the home. She hadn't woken up, so Officer Zanet had to wake up the 10-year-old girl and lead her into the living room with her sister and Russell. Yes, I was definitely there. I was sleeping, so it was, you know, it was 11 p.m. when I said goodnight to my mom. I gave her a hug and a kiss, and I went to bed. And around 11.15, her boyfriend, Russell, will come home, and I'll remember hearing him come home, and I'll drift off to sleep, and they'll get into a fight after I go to bed. And the next thing I remember, because I was a heavy sleeper, I was 10. 
I just remember flashlights in my face and it's three hours later and I have cops in my room and I don't I don't think that my mom is dead. I think I'm in trouble and I'm screaming and I'm like, oh my God, there's cops in my room. What do I do? And they got me, they were like, get dressed. And I didn't even have questions. I, no questions were asked. They were just like, get dressed. And they hustled me out of my house so fast. And I remember, I remember there was cops everywhere. And I remember the lights were on. And I remember seeing my mom's boyfriend on the couch, right where I had said goodnight to my mom three hours earlier. And he was sitting there and he was rocking. And I remember cops standing all over him. And as an adult now, I know they were interrogating him as they were hustling me out of the house and into the cop car. And that was the last time I've ever been in that house. Just, you know, everybody gets into the fight with their boyfriend or girlfriend, but alcohol was involved. And my mom had made a big decision on this night and he had come home drunk already. A gun was grabbed. My mom's life is lost. It's been 30 years. I had to grow up and get the case file. And it's been mind blowing to see the breakdown in the investigation and, and how the Sedona Police Department and the Yavapai County's Attorney's Office really did fail her and had continued to do so. The, the home was, my mom is still there at 530 Coffee Pot Drive. Whenever I go to Sedona, I'm compelled to drive by the home. I never got to go back in that home from the night that my mom was murdered. I'm drawn to that home and I want to buy that home. I've looked up its property value. I looked to see if it's for sale frequently throughout the years. I wouldn't want to go back to Sedona for any other reason than just to buy that home. And my aunt thinks that I'm nuts, but I know that my mom is still there and I, I want that house to be my house one day because it was a two bedroom house. This has nothing to do with my mom's case, but this is something that packed me. It was a two bedroom house, but because of me, they gave me the garage. So I was on the other side of the house. This is why I didn't hear anything because I was in the garage and the garage had the attic panel and I was never allowed to pull down that attic hatch. And of course, whenever my mom was gone, I'm up the stairs and that, that was my secret garden. So my dad didn't know when he came to get all my stuff after my mom died, the couple days after my mom died, he didn't know about the attic. So I always think to this day, all of my favorite toys were up there. All my secret stuff was in that attic. And I always think like, how long did it take the owners to open up that attic hatch and realize that that was a little girl's secret garden? The three of them are later taken to the police station where Officer Zanet sits down with them until about 3.10 a.m. He reads Russell his Miranda warnings at this time just to prepare him for questioning, which Russell agrees to once the detectives arrive back at the station. Just after CW had been let out of the room, Officer Brooks sees a Ruger 44 Magnum gun laying on the floor, sort of sitting on top of a brown leather holster and these items are sitting next to Stephanie's right shoulder. There's blood on the edge of the table and a bullet is embedded into the wall with hair attached to it. Which, this gun, I asked Jacob about it because Nikki, who I had the interview with, she was telling me it's like a very powerful gun and one that's very hard to shoot even though it is like a handgun. And I asked Jacob about it and even when I asked him, he was like, are you sure? Because I was like, would this gun be hard to shoot? Like with one hand and like at a weird angle. And he was like, are you sure she has the gun right? Because it is such a hard gun to shoot. Yeah. It just to put that in perspective because if I didn't hear things about guns from other people, I would have no idea the difference between any of them. <laughs> This isn't like a little nine millimeter girl. This is a 44 mag. They call it a bear defense. When I did research on it, like you're gonna be astounded. Any reasonable gun owner 
will hear the gun, the make and model, and be like, what? And they'll turn sideways. Like, all you gotta do is hear that and know that there's, and she's full of shit. Both Officer Brooks and Sergeant Stinson search for a pulse, but they aren't having any luck. Stephanie's pupils are fixed and dilated, and by 1.55 a.m., the Sedona Fire Department paramedics have arrived, and they look over the body to determine if there was anything that could be done, but Stephanie was gone. The medical examiner who performed the autopsy later will note that she died immediately since her spinal cord was severed by the bullet. Oh. Stephanie, yeah. So it went, like, through her throat and it came out the bottom of her skull on the right side oh. and just severed her spinal cord. Sad. Yeah, so Stephanie's left arm is bent and sort of laying beneath her body. Okay. Under her right arm, there's a piece of a gold-colored neck chain. Another smaller piece of this chain was located near the doorway of the bedroom, which I just, so I looked through 200 pages of the case file that Nikki sent to me. So all of this information is from like what the officers actually saw and what they reported. And I just picked up on this gold neck chain because it's mentioned in a few different officers reports that they noticed different pieces of this necklace laying around, which to me just indicated that possibly there was a physical altercation where like the necklace would be ripped off. Yeah because why else would it be broken all over the ground, so. Was it a woman's, like her necklace or his? I think hers, because part of it is under her arm and then there's part of it near the door. Stephanie also has matted blood in her hair as well as blood running from her forehead to her chin. Her shirt is soaked in blood in the breast area. There is blood on her upper left thigh as well as the lower left leg running down and the right thigh area has some blood spatter and the right lower leg has some blood wipe and blood spatter. There is also blood on the outside and some of the inside of Stephanie's right hand. She's wearing her class ring on this hand as well. And then officers examine the front of Stephanie for injuries in the chest and leg area, but they don't find any. They do see that her shirt is torn at the upper button area in the front and there were no injuries noticed on her arms. So also that button being torn just kind of made me think the same thing as the necklace. Yeah. Lividity is present in the heels and the back of her thighs, which do you know how long it takes for lividity to settle? I thought it was a while. Yeah, I don't know if the lividity is present right when officers get there or if this is when they're like examining the scene later on after talking to him i thought it would be hours but i don't know maybe if you're bleeding a lot it could settle quickly obviously the blood's gonna pool i do think they come back to the house around eight in the morning so it also might have been around then when they noticed this okay so it went off right here and it like blew out the back of her head right here. I mean, she was dead the second the, the trigger was pulled and she dropped to the ground. I know he panicked and even in the case file, he says he went to the bathroom first. He probably threw up and then came back and saw that she, and all the while my little sister's running around my mom's body. You can hear her in the 911 call, it's devastating. So detective spokes had been notified of this crime around 1.50 a.m. 
Sergeant Stinson, who was one of the first on the scene, had requested for Detective Spokes to make his way over and assist with the investigation. Upon arrival, he notices wood splinters on the outside of the light and dark brown single-family home. It turns out there was a bullet hole and bullet jacket lodged into the exterior of the home, just to the right of the front door. They would later find out that this shot was taken from the interior living room and went through the interior wall before lodging in the exterior wall. So this is a different shot than the shot that Stephanie is killed with. Okay. Detective Spokes sees the deceased body of a white female laying on the ground near the closet. She's wearing a green nightshirt and red underwear, and her red glasses lay on the floor beside her. Detective Spokes requests the help of Investigator Serarvo, who works for the Yavapai County Attorney's Office. The two of them make contact with Russell Peterson. They're able to both interview him and have him give his permission for a search of the home, and he signs this consent form by 6.55 a.m. At this time, he also asks to call an attorney. The police department, of course, complies, but Russell doesn't end up calling an attorney. Instead, he calls his dad and then a friend slash employer named Ted. Investigator Serarvo and Detective Spokes would return to the home on Coffee Pot Drive and process the scene. I was able to look over this 200-page case file in preparation for the episode, and I read the transcribed report of Nikki's little sister's interview with police. I've chosen certain portions of the interview and certain questions to share with you here. And mom, this is the list of questions and answers that I sent to you. So that it's not confusing for everyone listening, I'll have you read the questions asked by detectives, and then I'll read the answers to those questions given by CW, the younger girl, preschool age, that is being questioned. The sister of Nikki? Yes, her younger sister. Okay. It was the one that was on the bed when investigators get there. Okay. Did something happen at home tonight? My mother died. She did? What happened? How did she die? Um, my dad killed her. How did your dad kill her? Um, with a gun. He killed her with a gun? Tell me about it. He killed her with a gun and then she bleeded. Did you see that? She was dead. Where were you sleeping at? I was sleeping in my room. Tell me what you heard and what you saw. I saw her bleed. You saw her bleed? Did you see your dad shoot her? Uh-huh. They were fighting. How did he kill her? With a gun? You take a bullet and then he killed her. Did you see that? You saw that? But I didn't see. I was sleeping. You were sleeping? Uh-huh. Tell me what you saw. I was asleep and then Papa killed her. How did you see Papa kill her? She had blood all over her room. How did you see Papa kill her? Papa didn't kill her. Poppy did. Poppy did? Poppy killed her? Because I was sleeping, sleeping in my own room. Then I come out and the light and blood all over. There was blood on my rug. Did you see that? Did you see anybody shoot her? No. No? Where were you? I was sleeping in my room. Did you hear anybody fighting? No. Did you hear any gunshots before that? But I just herded the gun. How many times did you hear the gun? One time or two times or three times or four times? One time. One time? And then Papa took the gun. 
Who did? Papa. Poppy? Who is Poppy? That's my father. And what did he do with the gun? He killed my mom. He did? How many times did he do the gun? One time. Then what? Poppy killed her. How do you know Poppy killed her? Because my mother was dead and Poppy killed her. When you walked in mom's room, what did mommy look like? She was dead. Already when you walked in, where was daddy at? He was in mommy's room. Where was the gun at? Um, in the closet. I mean, he got it out. The gun was in the closet? Uh-huh. It was in the closet and daddy got it out? Yes. What did he say? He said that he shot the gun, then he cried. He said what? He said that it's hopeless and he cried. It's hopeless? Mm-hmm. And he cried? Uh-huh. Was he re- already in the room when you were- went in there? Mm-hmm. Now, about this time in the interview, the interviewer pulls out a photograph or diagram of the room, and they show her where the closet is. They ask where her mom was in this room, and she says that her mom was in the corner and the gun was in the closet. She continues saying that her dad, Russell, got the gun out of the closet. She says multiple times that her mom was laying face down and that her dad was on the bed. And then the questioning continues. The gun was in the closet and daddy was sitting over here on the bed? Uh Uh-huh. Then what happened? He was shooting her and I'll never have a mama again. He was shooting her? Did you see him shoot her? No. No? Okay, so was the gun in the closet when you saw it? Uh Uh-huh, the door. Then what happened? Right then, somebody get the gun out of the closet? Um, my dad did, and he... What did he do with the gun? And my dad, my dad was just about shoot her, and I'll never have a mom again. Who got the gun out of the closet, sweetie? Um, my dad. What did he do when he got it out of the closet? Um, he shot my mom. Did you see him shoot your mom? I was in my room sleeping. Well, then what did he do when he got the gun out that you saw? Um, the big gun? Oh, yeah. Um, out of the closet, and then he... What did he say? He said it was hopeless. Did he say anything to you? No, I just cried because of my mom. You did? Did you touch your mom? I just touched the blood. You touched the blood? Why did you touch the blood? She was dead, and my dad shot her. My dad did shoot her. Do you know if he shot her or she shot herself? My dad shot her. Did you see that? Now, at this point, CW starts talking about having a bad old dream about this whole situation. And when she's asked if that dream was tonight, she says that she had a dream when it was dark. So the interviewer says, but you didn't see it. And she just responds with, my dad shooted my mom. They decided to end the interview here at 4.57 a.m. So that's like really sad. I know. I know that she... It's confusing to know like, did she see it? And then her dad just told her to say that or... I know. I kind of thought with the dream thing, like when she started talking about it all being a bad dream, did her dad tell her that like you were sleeping this was a bad dream yeah Mm. because where would you get that this was a bad dream and you she says she had it when it was dark 
it's hard because she's preschool age. But I mean, she is insistent throughout the entire thing that her dad killed her mom. Yeah. And she does keep talking about him getting the gun out of the closet, which seems really confusing. But you'll see that he does say he did this. Huh. Why? After she's shot, he ends up saying that he panicked. So he actually put the gun away where they found the gun next to her right shoulder above the holster. He placed it there after he tried to put the gun back in the closet. Oh, my gosh. So, like, she was right about that. She was seeing that. That is confirmed. So what else about her story is correct? At the very least, it's, like, devastating that she had to see her mom like that, whether her own dad did it or whether he didn't. Oh, I know. Why did he let her in there? I know. Like, don't allow her in here on the bed. Like, you would think you'd want to protect her from seeing anything. He has his investigation, his interrogations, and they released the clip that says where, I didn't want to be accused of murder, so I panicked. I picked up the gun, I put it back in its holster, I put it back up in the closet, but then I thought, oh, it's too late, it already happened, so I put it back down by her. This is before he calls 911. He is quoted saying that. You're gonna freak out when you watch the Fox News story. So now going back to when Russell and the girls are still in the living room in those early morning hours of July 9th, 1993, just after Stephanie is shot, Officer Zana is talking with Russell about what occurred. Russell says that he worked until 11 p.m. on July 8th and then he headed home. After Russell came home from work on July 8th, he was dropped off by a coworker named Susie and her boyfriend. And Russell claims that Stephanie had already been drinking. And Russell starts telling Officer Zanet about a long telephone conversation Stephanie had had with Craig Daly, her oldest daughter's dad. He says that this conversation moved into an argument about his acceptance into a cooking course at Cornell University over in New York. He had recently purchased a ticket and was set to leave for two weeks on July 10th, 1993. He's like, look, we were arguing in the living room and all of a sudden she got angry and she went to grab a handgun of mine from the bedroom. I was sitting on the couch and she told me she wanted to blow my head off. Russell says that the bullet missed him and then he stood up, following her into the hallway leading from the living room to the master bedroom where she was shot. Sergeant Stinson heard this same story from Russell, that Stephanie fired at him first and she told him she was going to blow his head off. The bullet hits the living room wall, according to Russell, which is confirmed by Detective Stokes, who saw the bullet embedded in the exterior wall near the front door. He also saw that the curtain hanging from the front living room window had a bullet hole in it. What's not confirmed is who fired this shot. Oh, yeah. He, she went to the bedroom and they struggled over the gun, which I don't doubt that is literally what happened. They struggled over the gun. But why was a gun grabbed at all, Kayla? He claims that my mom grabbed it to kill him. No, he found out that she was leaving. He grabbed the gun to intimidate her or whatever, and she struggled to get the gun away from her. It went off as in an accident. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt that he didn't plan on killing my mom. It was an accident, but the gun went off. Like if he was driving a car and killed somebody, it's vehicular manslaughter. Pay the piper. There's two bullets dispensed from this gun. So we, his, like I said, his story, she did it first. But more than likely, 
that the, the altercation with the gun happened he panicked so then what's he do tries to cover his steps because he calls his dad and then now this second so we just got to prove our side of the story so there's no confirmation that stephanie did shoot at him first and then he gets the gun from her or they struggle for it yeah i mean it's hard to shoot a gun yeah like i have one that's mine and it's difficult to pull yeah and this is again like a heavy duty gun even though it's a handgun it has a lot of kickback i was able to read through the interview transcript of russell's first interrogation at the police station he's talking with detective stokes and investigator sararbo Russell admits that both him and Stephanie had been drinking together that night, but he notes that he is sober at this point in time, so he will be able to talk with investigators. It had been hours by the time he's talking with them from the time that Stephanie was shot. Russell repeats that he and Stephanie had gotten into an argument that night, and he says again that Stephanie grabbed the gun to shoot at him first. However, he says that he doesn't think her intentions were actually to kill him. He's thinking maybe she was just trying to scare him. Like he said back at the scene, he gets up from the couch and he follows Stephanie into the hallway and into the master bedroom. He says in the master bedroom, they're talking with each other. They're standing face to face in front of the closet. And he says, you know, after having one ring above my head, I grabbed her hand. We struggled a little bit and the next thing I know, it went off and she dropped. I thought it wasn't really true. I look down and I see her face is on the ground. I see blood. Russell will say that as they faced each other, she must have had the gun in her right hand since she was right-handed. He also claimed that she's pointing it around while they talk. Through their struggle, they never go down to the ground. They physically struggle standing up until the shot is fired and Stephanie falls to the ground. Quote, it happened so fast. It was never meant to happen. It happened so fast. Russell says that he picks Stephanie's head up off the ground, thinking about how badly hurt she must be. Quote, I didn't know what to do, and I didn't want to be accused of murder or anything like that. So I picked up the gun. I put it in the holster. I put it back in the closet. Then I brought it back down. At this point, he admits to officers that this was a stupid move. And once he brings the gun back out... He places it on the ground by Stephanie's right shoulder where the police would find it upon entering the scene. Again, confirmation to what his daughter was talking about. Yeah. That he did get the gun out of the closet. He goes on to repeat that Stephanie was face down on the ground in somewhat of a fetal position with her legs balled up to her chest. At this point, he admits that he panicked and he looks down the hallway to see his daughter, CW, standing there awake. So he rushes into the bathroom and when he comes back out, he claims that he had the false hope Stephanie was going to be up, but she wasn't. And this is when he calls 911. Quote, I won't say she shot herself and I won't say I shot her. It happened during the struggle. So, and he's saying she's face down, which... Remember, all the officers come onto the scene and she is laying on her back. Oh, yep. So, and this is a point in his story that changes later as well. Just like with the struggle. So, but he says clearly she's face down multiple times during this first interrogation. Now, following this interview, Russell is taken by Detective Spokes and Investigator Sararbo back to his home on Coffee Pot Drive in Sedona. This happens around 8.05 a.m. 
Once they arrive back at his house, he's instructed to remove his clothing and hand it over to police as evidence. Then he is allowed to grab new clothes. While he's there, he also makes sure to grab his plane tickets that are set to fly from Arizona to Ithaca, New York on July 10th, and he shows them to the officers, telling them that this is what they had been arguing about that night. At this point, the home is processed for evidence. First, the outside and inside are both photographed. Spokes and Savaro notice again that a necklace seems to be torn apart, with pieces laying across the floor. In the master bedroom, there is blood on the TV and the stand just above Stephanie's head. The bullet jacket is lodged in the wall. By 3.35 a.m., David Kaminsky of the Child Protective Services arrives at the police station. He's talking with Russell by 4.20 a.m., and Russell seemed to be open to allowing the two children to be taken into a temporary foster care so that they can at least get some sleep. David is waiting on more information from his supervisor when Russell calls his friend and co-worker Peter Korn. Peter is at the police station by 5.20 a.m. and he picks up the two girls. Officer Irish talks with Peter later on that morning, both at 6.20 a.m. and 8.20 a.m. by phone, and Peter is vouching for Russell. He works both with Russell and Stephanie. Russell is a chef at a local restaurant and Stephanie is the pastry chef. Although he claims that he does not want to badmouth Stephanie, he goes on to say that she was distraught that day and upset about Russell's upcoming trip to New York, where he would be attending a 10-day special training. Peter claims that Russell and Stephanie always seem to be arguing, but in Peter's mind, it was always Stephanie who was causing the problems. He tells Officer Irish that Russell never talked bad about Stephanie, but she did talk badly about him and he claims she made threatening type comments. She was always annoyed that Russell was wrapped up in his work. He claims to recall Stephanie talking often about being miserable in her life and all the problems she was having at home. Peter goes as far as to say he could definitely see Stephanie taking action to end her own life, but he just could not see Russell shooting her. So of course, right off the bat, he's blaming Stephanie. Yeah which a lot of people who work with Russell and Stephanie will see that they all kind of back up Russell. But I like seem to think that it sounds more like because Stephanie was really outspoken and pretty blunt for a woman and they didn't like it, it sounds like. <laughs> he, he worked 12 hours. He was the executive chef. He was there all day, every day. He was proud to do it. You know, there he was God. He, he was he's a narcissist. So there is where he could be in charge and everybody had to revolve around him. So he fed off that. So he never wanted to be home because at home was where my mom was in charge. The home was a big deal because this was my mother's first home. Um, no, they did not buy it. They rented this home, 530 Coffee Pot Drive. But in, in Phoenix, we lived in an apartment. We were just a little apartment family, two bedroom apartment. And then this was the first time we had a home. So my mom was very proud, was out gardening, keeping, keeping it clean. She was just very proud of the little family she created. And Russell just had no interest in being a part of the family unit, but he was, he'd always say that I'm supporting that. Or the only reason you have that is because of me. You'll read the case file. There's a lot of victim blaming too with that, which really frustrates me. The victim blaming, it, it very much makes me mad. 
At 7.20 a.m. on July 9th, another phone call comes into the station. It's a woman named Phyllis Peterson. This is Russell's mom. She calls Stephanie by the nickname Stacy, and she's calling to confirm that Stephanie has died. At 11.30 a.m. that same day, another employee at the restaurant stops by the station to chat. This is Miss Ruth Bayland, and she informs officers that she made arrangements for Russell and his parents to stay at the local Poco Diablo Resort while they're unable to go back to Russell's home as the scene is being processed. His parents were traveling in from Phoenix to be with him, and Ruth also tells police she's known both Russell and Stephanie for several months, and she isn't sure why this whole thing happened, but she does know that Russell is a real nice guy. Sounds like it. Seems like it, definitely. Till he snaps. Yep. So, Catherine Dindler is another co-worker police would talk with. She said on July 8th, when Russell and Stephanie had arrived at work, she met Stephanie in the parking lot and they chatted. Catherine informed detectives that Stephanie said she had a rough childhood. She had told Catherine that she was abused in previous relationships. Catherine goes on to say that Stephanie would always try to push Russell's buttons at work, but he would ignore her. Catherine said that she never witnessed any physical violence between the couple. Officers are also able to talk with Susie Corbett at her home there in Sedona. She's the one who gave Russell a ride home that night along with her boyfriend. She claimed that Russell was in a good mood this night and was excited to leave for his trip to New York. She had talked with Stephanie the same day. They were also friends and Stephanie had confided in her that she was upset with Russell. She claimed that Stephanie had wanted Susie to take her kids to her house that night so that her and Russell could have some alone time before his trip. But because another employee had gone home early for the night, she wasn't able to do this. Susie recalls Stephanie saying that Russell worked way too much and he didn't pay attention to her or the children. She was a bit stressed about the money with Russell's upcoming two-week trip. Susie would also describe Stephanie as a straight-to-the-point woman who sometimes said things in a vulgar manner. She never heard Stephanie threaten Russell, but she also says she never heard Russell threaten Stephanie. On July 10th, officers would speak with another coworker by the name of Luis Rodriguez. He describes Russell as a good person. He didn't think Stephanie was that nice though. And he says that one time he even asked her why she was always mean to Russell. He claims that Stephanie replied, saying that it hurt to be nice. Which, I I don't know. Like, all her co-workers think she's a little, like, meaner. But I really do think it probably comes down to just her being more blunt. And it sounds like Russell was just more quiet. Yeah, it does. Sounds like me. Or, yes, exactly. Yeah, like, I was going to say, you probably know what it's like being in the workplace as, like, a more blunt person. Yeah. Sometimes not everybody takes that kindly. Definitely more blunt than my husband. Yeah, and you guys work together. So would you say people at your work think that Shannon is a lot nicer than you? Oh, yeah. See, I think it just comes down to the personalities. If he murdered me, they'd probably be like, yep, she deserved it somehow. (laughs) They'd be doing the same thing as Stephanie's co-workers. Like, well, she was the one who was mean to him. Yeah. Or like, she would be really blunt with him. Yeah. So I think that's kind of like their view here. But when she like tells this Luis guy, it hurt to be nice. To me, that's playing into like 
she tries to be nice and she's like not getting anything out of him. It sounds like she was frustrated with him for real life things like not being home enough, not paying enough attention. Yeah. And someone can seem like a very nice person on the outside, but you just don't know what their home life is like. You do not. So another coworker calls days later and her name is Kathy Bertoliga. I don't even know how to say that. She wants to know what happens, and she says that she's been trying to contact Russell, but his own old phone number is not working anymore, which this is true. He ends up getting rid of his old phone number. He tells police he will inform them when he gets a new one, but he actually waits a few months to inform police of his new phone number. Well, Kathy, she says that she thought really highly of Russell. She even asks that police let Russell know she's trying to get in touch with him because she's worried about him. She informs officers that she's totally willing to talk further. In fact, she thinks it's necessary to get a statement from her since she knows both Russell and Stephanie. So sounds like she's really trying to get them to take her statement so she can vouch for him. And then Ted Butler calls the same day that Kathy had, and he's upset because he's the manager at this restaurant. He's also the man that Russell had called back at the police station when he claimed he wanted to call an attorney. Ted says the reason he's upset is because some of his employees had been interviewed before him and he felt that the manager would be one of the first to be contacted. At this point, investigators tell him they're not sure what other statements they need, but they'll let him know if they do need more from him. Now, while all these people had nothing but kind things to say about Russell while trying to throw Stephanie under the bus, her family and friends had quite a different image of her relationship with Russell. On the day Stephanie was killed, an officer does try to reach out to Stephanie's mom, known as Beatrice Evan. Everyone calls her B. She lived in the Phoenix area and he was able to find a telephone number for her, but after three attempts, there was no answer. So investigators dig further. They're able to find the number for Stephanie's sister, Kathleen Anderson. They get a hold of her around 1.30 p.m. on July 9th. She asks if her mother has been notified, but they tell her that they've been unable to reach her. She wants to be the one to inform her mom. Big family, big Russian family. Um, we're second generation Russian American. My grandpa came over from Russia on the boat. Um, so big family. My mom had five other siblings and actually she was a twin. Her, Stephen and Stacy were born on August, no, sorry, June 1st, 1961, but he won't make it. He, he'll die in childhood. But then my aunt Wendy will be born within a year of his passing. So he essentially becomes the twin that was lost. And Wendy and, and my mom will grow up, you know, a year and a half apart, but they'll break my, my grandma, grandpa will raise them like they're the twins. So that is why this was so hard for Wendy and is so hard for Wendy because this was her best friend, her twin. So she never gave up. And I do got to give Wendy credit because in 30 years, she never gave up, but she kept pounding on the door of the people that kept trying to silence us where I, I'm taking it to media. And that's where she went wrong. She kept going, you know, to the government agencies, what you're supposed to do, which is what I thought. Like I always thought my aunt was going to get this solved. I never thought I was going to have to do this because my aunt has been so persistent for so many years. Kathleen comes to the Sedona Police Department a couple days later on July 11th. Kathleen claimed that Stephanie was thinking of leaving Russell. Her only hesitation was with their daughter. 
Stephanie seemed to become increasingly unhappy in the last six months. It's the same day, July 11th, that Russell calls police and he's like, hey, I need you guys to meet me over at my house ASAP. So they do. Russell wants to do a walkthrough of the events with them. He shows them how he was sitting on the couch when Stephanie came out to the living room and shot at him. He says now that he actually waited a minute or two before getting up. He didn't immediately follow her like he originally said. And as he was walking down the hallway towards the master bedroom, he heard the second gunshot fire. He tells them now that he thinks about it, he did not wrestle with Stephanie over the gun. He was barely to the door when he heard the shot. So his story has changed. Just days later, two days later, he's starting to change his story. This is where we got to prove that he's a liar because he claims that she tried to shoot at him, shot at him, and then turned around to go into the bedroom to shoot herself, essentially to do a murder-suicide with her two children in the house on the night that she decided to leave this man. Go figure. So that's his story. And my mom's story's never been able to be told until recently because I had to grow up. You know, the cops did a, a lackluster job in 93 and they didn't even care to really investigate in 2020 if you even want to call the 2020 investigation. So now the 2023 is going to be an investigation because the daughter's got it on blast. By July 10th, 1993, police had also spoke with B. This is Stephanie's mom. And they spoke to her at the foster home where the children were being cared for, which was in Cottonwood, Arizona. So I think the children are just kind of being cared for in foster care until they get everything sorted out. And she says the last time she spoke with Stephanie, who she's calling Stacy, was 10 days earlier. They were making plans to go to Disneyland. She described the relationship between Stephanie and Russell as not smooth. She said Russell was abusive both physically and emotionally. She says that he is also a redacted something. I think maybe they're saying alcoholic, but I can't be sure because it's redacted in the police report but they're saying that because of whatever he is he urinates all over himself and inside of the residence ew yeah and her sister also says this now stephanie's mom says that on more than 50 occasions russell had been abusive b advised that russell called her on the 9th and said that stephanie had shot herself and he never mentioned that they had been wrestling over the gun which again, on the 9th, he said they were wrestling over it. By the 11th, he's saying that they didn't. Oh, okay. But she liked to, to cook. So I remember it was one of her first big, she worked at the Charlton, it was the, yeah, Sheraton Crescent Hotel. Huge hotel down in like in central Phoenix down here. And she was this pastry chef and she met the big um, executive chef. I don't know if he was the executive chef, but he was a, a chef. And he wore the chef jacket and he was completely different than my dad and her and my dad were breaking down and my dad's the construction guy you know out in the shop doesn't care about you know domestic things doesn't want to do you know girly things so she meets this chef that's always inside uh, it was he's just completely different so he he swept her off her feet so in in arizona you've got the grand canyon which is the most visited area in arizona but then you've got the sedona area which is the red rocks um it's very artsy it's gorgeous something about the iodine uh, it, that makes the rocks red so you got to have lots of money to live up there and in, in the 90s my, my my family didn't have money but what my mom had was a skill and her and russell they had a, a cooking they had a um 
a partnership with cooking. He was the executive chef and my mom was the pastry chef. So they got hired on to open a brand new Italian restaurant in Sedona, Arizona in the early 90s, like 1991, 92 is when they moved us out there. This was a big deal because this was a step up. This was moving us from Phoenix, where I am now, up to Sedona, where we were living better, where I got to go to the better schools. And, you know, it was hobnob with the fancy people. I think like Lucille Ball had a house up there back in like the day. So it was a big deal and it, it really was great until it wasn't great anymore because he became invested in that restaurant. And I don't even remember us being a family with him around the two years because he lived at that restaurant. And that's where it started to break down the relationship and where it got bad. Now police spoke with Wendy and she said they were best friends. This is Stephanie's sister. They were super close and they even talked on July 8th at 7.15 p.m. just before she died. She said that originally when she called around 7.15, Stephanie was not in a good mood. She said she hadn't had sex in seven, mo- seven months, but she had arranged for the kids to be gone. Her and Russell were supposed to be alone that evening. But remember, her friend Susie ends up not being able to take the kids. Stephanie and her sister Wendy talk for about 45 minutes, and then Wendy calls her back around 10.30 p.m. that night, and they speak for another 35 minutes. At that time, she says that Stephanie was happy and added that she loved life, she was afraid of death, and she would never take her own life. She also said that Stephanie did say Russell was abusive and a redacted again, so not sure what the mom and the sister are saying he is, and that he would get drunk and piss all over the residence. Ew. So they have like a much different view. Yeah, of way different. Russell than his coworkers. Yes. And they also, police are also able to talk with Lance Wasilishin, and this is Stephanie's brother. He says that his sister was not suicidal. He said that she really tried hard to make the relationship with Russell work, but that she was always talking about how they didn't have sex and he was physically abusive. Lance said that a couple of years ago when Russell and Stacy lived in Phoenix together, he was over at their apartment and he witnessed Russell shove Stacy and he was yelling and screaming at her, but Lance intervened and stopped it there. So it didn't go any further. But this is the one person who does say they actually witnessed something. Toxic, emotional, verbal all the time. I don't know what happened after we went to bed, but in front of the children, it was verbal, toxic all the time, back and forth. He was Italian. He liked to um, swear at her in Italian. We didn't know what, you know, um, he would, she would get mad because she doesn't know what he's saying. And then it would, it would spit her off. And she was, I'm just like my mom. And she was very strong willed and she didn't let any, she was like a victim her whole life. So when she got older, she didn't let anybody push her around. And so they fought a lot and especially with him drinking and him working so much, it, it was bad. And my mom wanted to leave. She had made plans the night of her death to leave. This is that whole, this is what prompted this. The motive for murder was that phone call and her making the decision to leave and to leave with his daughter, which is what made him see red. Now, police also have to interview Craig daily by phone. And again, this is Nikki's dad. And he had been talking with Stephanie on the phone that night for a couple of hours. So Craig, he tells officers that he had lived with Stephanie for five years. He was Nikki's father and that they broke up because they just didn't see eye to eye. 
He's asked if he had any guns, and he did. He says Stacy never shot the guns, but a few minutes later, he changes his mind and says maybe she did shoot them a couple of times. Like if they went out, if they went shooting, he's not sure. Now, they also ask him about Stephanie's temperament. Was she angry? What, like, did she have a temper? And he said that her temper was average and that she had never threatened him. Craig said Stephanie talked to him about her and Russell's problems. And as they talked about when he was coming to pick Nikki up, they started to drift into old times in this conversation, specifically just before she's killed. So, and they spoke for about one to two hours. Craig says that she did say in the past that Russell drank a lot and she hinted around that he had maybe roughed her up. He was asked by officers if Stephanie had talked to him about getting back together, but he stated that they didn't because that was not an option. Although he did say that Stephanie may have said it teasingly. Officers also ask him if she ever threatened suicide, but he says that she never did and that she was a very strong-willed girl. That night, I remember my mom being on the phone a lot. As a child, I had no idea what was going on. She did keep it from us. I just knew that my mom was unhappy and on the phone a lot, and we were getting yelled at. My sister and I, go to your room. Go play in your room. Go outside, because now I know as an adult going through the case file what my mom was doing. My mom was talking to my aunt for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, telling her how unhappy she was. Russell's drunk, doing all this stuff. He was going out of town that weekend and taking all her money. She had specifically saved all this money for Disneyland. The first time that we were going to go to Disneyland was this summer. And he was taking some of this money for his culinary trip to Ithaca, New York, blah, blah, blah. Well, she was telling my aunt about this. She was all upset about it. You know, she's cracking back some some beer. She's at home. She's more than allowed to do whatever she wants at home. And if she has a blood alcohol level at the time of her death at one in the morning, 0.17, that is her right to be at home because she wasn't driving anywhere. I like to get a lot of crap victim blaming for my mom drinking. She had every right to sit on the phone and be unhappy and talk to her sister about it. And then she made a phone call to my father and they talked for 107 minutes. Now, if you look at the phone bill, this is not something that they did every night, every week, every month. If they talked, it was five, 10 minutes. On this night, my mom finally breaks down and tells my dad how unhappy she is, what's going on with Russell, what he's doing. She lays it on my dad and my dad has had the same story for 30 years. He has told me what this phone call consisted of to the point where like, she's even drinking some more and they're having dirty talk. And I've had to tell my dad, ah, you know, I don't need to hear that much of what my mom was telling she's gonna do to you when she comes back. Because the point of this Kayla is together, they made the decision that night that she was gonna pack up me, my sister, the dog, the cat, and move back that weekend when he was gone to New York the perfect timing. It was all coming together. It was made the plan. My mom was so happy. So when she calls my aunt back at like 1030, she doesn't tell my aunt about this, but you can even see it in the case file where, where it's quoted, where my, my aunt says, Stacy was happy at this time. That's because she had just made plans, but my aunt and my dad did not get along. Still really don't. They don't really like each other. And so it's not like my mom rushed back to tell her tell her sister this she she was the point is is that my my mom was happy on that second phone call to my aunt and that phone call ended around 10 30 and about a half an hour later i'll go to bed and i'll say good night to her for the last time and she was happy and she asked me you know if i brush my teeth and i told her no and i kissed the side of her neck 
and I went to bed, not knowing that she's going to be dead three hours later because she'd made that decision to leave this relationship. And I don't know if she actually told Russell or if he found out or she voluntarily, but somehow a fight is prompted over that phone call. And even in the case file, you can count how many times Russell brings up that phone call and my dad's name, Craig, before the investigators ask. You can tell that that that's what prompt that is the motive and what prompted it. It wasn't over money and him leaving. Sure, it could have been the added stress, but it's because my mom made this huge decision this night. And the 93 investigators never cared enough to to investigate and, and interrogate my and question my dad more. They they talked to him over the telephone, and his interview is a half a page out of a 400 page case file. My dad's interview is a half a page, and when I read it to my dad 30 years later, he goes, "Nikki, that's not what I told them." The motive completely got overlooked in 93. They weren't even, it wasn't even really brought to their attention until I had my interview in January of this year, 30 years later. My dad was just interviewed in person in February of this year. They drove down here from Sedona to interview my father. My dad has a lot to say about that, but there's no proof. He says that Russell was, was recording her phone calls and he has said that for 30 years. There's no proof. My mom told him that. And that's why she was extra super vulgar. I don't care if Russell hears. I'm going to do this, this, and this to you. So that's, my dad's always said that Russell came home and heard that. I don't know. That's speculation. I don't have proof of that. So that's not something I, I talk about like on my TikTok channel. But I'm telling you just so you have context because my dad's story has remained the same for three decades. By September of that year, Officer Irish had made a telephone call to Mr. James A. Mayer. He was a friend with Stephanie, and they went to the same high school together at Moon Valley High School, graduating in 1979. All the information he heard so far was from Wendy, Stephanie's sister, and he was also friends with Wendy. He stated that he didn't really have anything he could say other than he did not feel Stephanie would shoot anyone or handle a gun in any manner. So, the autopsy of Stephanie's body is done by Dr. Keene of the Maricopa County Medical Examiner's Office in Phoenix, Arizona. He reported that the gunshot wound was in fact a contact wound with the muzzle of the handgun, and that she died instantly due to the fact that both the windpipe and the spinal cord were severed by the bullet passing through her neck, and exiting the body below the skull on the right rear portion of her neck at about the bottom of her hairline. There's evidence at the entry wound of gunpowder burns as well as under her chin. She also sustained a small fracture inside the right portion of the skull and under the brain. She also had a blood alcohol content of 0.17 as determined by a verbal toxicology report that was given to her at autopsy. Dr. Keene also took hand samples from her left and her right hand, which were bagged with brown paper bags at the time of her arrival. He also obtained a sample from the entry wound area, and the purpose of this was to determine the existence of gunpowder residue and if it was present at any or all of the locations. Dr. Keene says that it was his opinion her death was a homicide and that she would have probably had to have held the gun in her left hand to obtain the angle and location of the entry and exit wounds. Dr. Keene asks officers multiple times if Stephanie was right or left-handed. Officers are informed of the results of the gunpowder residue tests. They were positive 
on the palm and the webbing of her left hand, but there was no gunpowder residue present on her right hand. On the basis of this information, Dr. Keene was filing his report as a homicide. Dr. Keene, he lets detective spokes and investigator Sararvo know that in his opinion, she was shot in a defensive posture. So that's why she has the defensive, the gunpowder residue on her left hand on the palm, because he's saying that she held her hand up to push the gun away. Oh yeah, that makes sense. So with this information on August 3rd, 1992, some of the detectives do a reenactment with a woman named Nancy Wilson. She had measurements similar to Stephanie, like same arm measurements, all of that. They were unable to have Nancy pull the trigger when she was holding the gun at the same angle of entry with her left hand. She also had difficulty in pulling the trigger when the gun was fired just one-handed, like not even at the odd angle. Now there is gunpowder residue present on her left hand. Now my mother was right-handed and in the medical examiner's autopsy report, the reason that there's gunpowder present on her left hand was defensive posture and positioning because my mother's death is a homicide. My mom was right-handed and according to the suspect, he claims that my mom grabbed the gun went out to the living room, shot at him, shot at him with a 44 Magnum Ruger Red Hawk. If you know anything about guns, it's a huge gun. It weighs three pounds. The kickback is huge. Not only can a man not really do it one-handed, but a woman of 138 pounds with a blood alcohol of 0.17, like his story just falls apart if you like poke some holes into it. Because even with, it's ruled a homicide. My mother's death was ruled a homicide. The narrative of suicide is what the suspect is bringing up. And it's kind of just what they're running with because they don't want to investigate it any further. It's just, it's. Now on July 10th, just the day after Stephanie is shot, police had talked with Russell again at the Poco Diablo resort where he was staying. And he, this is like his second interview. And he says that he believes Stephanie loved him. He knew she loved her kids. And he knew that Stephanie went through things in her past that had never really surfaced. And then he's asked, did she ever threaten you before this night? And he says, no. The only threat she had ever made to me was that she had the power to take our daughter away. You may never see her again, or I'll make sure of certain things. Now he's asked if she made threatening comments to him at work. They said that they've heard things from coworkers that she said, I'm going to come over and stick stick a knife in your gut, which remember they're chefs. So she probably did say that like when he's bugging her, like I'm going to stick this knife in your stomach. Yeah. We've all said something like that where we're like not meaning it. So even Russell says like, oh yeah, she would say that, but I never took it as a threat. We were just like at work. During this interview, he tells officers that Stephanie had never attacked him. He says that they never really fought. It all comes down to what their interpretation is of a fight. He also mentions that conversation with Craig quite a bit. He says that Craig maybe or maybe had not invited her to go back and stay with him to see if they could patch things up. And... The officers ask if she threatened to leave him, but he says no, she didn't threaten anything. He said he was uncomfortable because of the fact that it's Nikki's father and the relationship that he was in with her, but that it didn't really bother him that much. Russell says that he never had possession of the gun until he picked it up after the shot was fired and panicked. 
At this point, one day later, he's saying that he thinks she committed suicide, which remember the day before on the 911 call and to officers, he's like, I don't know. I don't know if she shot herself. I don't know if I shot her. Why would he even panic? I know. And he says like, it was in the struggle. Well, if she was shooting at you and you're struggling and that happens, it seems like your first instinct would just be to call 911 because you know you didn't do anything wrong. And it also seems that your story wouldn't change. He also blames Stephanie's background a lot. He brings up all the time in these interviews, how she had a very unstable background. He even says like she came from a really unstable background. So I don't know if she was just set off the edge. I don't have the answers. He even tells them like, I didn't come from this unstable background. I know you guys didn't come from an unstable background like hers. Like he just really tries to like let them know that she's. What's an unstable background? Yeah, I don't know. He's just likes to bring that up a lot that she was like a harsher person or like a more blunt person because she came from this background. So maybe that's why she did this. Just really trying to put the blame on her. And what really blows my mind is that they'll let him, Russell, bring in the phone bill. They don't subpoena for work records, bank statements, the phone bill. They let the suspect bring in his own phone bill three months after my mother's murder on, I think it was October 14th. That's when he brings it in. And I don't understand that. And then three weeks after he brings in his phone bill with like hard evidence on there that he's calling other people before 911. Like he knows what's on that phone bill. He knows, that's why he didn't want to bring it in. Three weeks after he submitted that phone bill, The Sedona Police Department is canceling scientific examination reports on my mom's, on the gun. uh, Essentially, they gave up investigating by September of 1993. So following all of this, time passes, but not much happens in the investigation. Officers only speak with Russell a few more times. By his fourth or fifth interview, Russell has changed his story a bit each time. He says he never laid a hand on Stephanie, like her mom and sister have tried to claim. Quote, that is something, a way of trying to put this picture together and lay shit on me. Her ex-boyfriend Craig did, documented. He put her in the hospital a few times, used to knock the shit out of her. That's maybe their way of dealing with this. I don't know. To go home and have such an act happen, it's... And then he trails off. He doesn't finish his sentence. He goes on to describe the first shot he claims Stephanie took at him. Remember, he said originally that he thought she was just trying to scare him. Now he is saying that it was intentional. Quote, if she would have aimed for my chest, she wouldn't have missed. She aimed for my head. She was only this far off. It becomes, I almost thought I was shot. Which again, I'll take you back to the first interviews where he's like, she was just trying to scare me. Like she purposely shot above my head. But now he's like, no, no, no. She was trying to shoot at my head. And that's why she missed. Then he says, I mean, look at the barrel and the size of that effing gun that my father gave me. I never thought I'd be looking down the barrel of a 44 Magnum. She turns to go into the bedroom. My daughter got up from asleep because of the noise. Time becomes difficult. Now I'm talking in minutes. I'm not talking in seconds. I don't know what happened. I may know. It'll come to me. I never, I don't think I ever put my hands on her. Again, he's just a slightly all over the place. 
But now Russell talks about what his daughter, C.W., saw. Quote, as the gun goes off, she's up and she's down the hall. But I'm standing there. She can't really see, but she did see her mother fall. And the act of myself, we're talking about a four-year-old. She just turned, and then that's redacted how old she turned. She sees me pick up the gun, put it put it here. She sees me put it back in the closet and put it back down. She sees me trying to pick her up. She sees me set her back down to make the phone call. With the noise and the finality, what else is she going to think but my dad shot my mom? So this is his reasoning behind why she says that her dad killed her mom. At this point, Detective Spoke says there's obviously a bunch of discrepancies in how he has told the story. Every time we've talked to you four or five times, the story has been different. That's just at one point where the main event happened. One minute you say you struggled, then another time you said you didn't. Then you can't decide how she fell, how she landed. We also talked to your daughter who described how she was laying on the ground. Then we have what you said on the 911 tape. We talked to the fire, emergency police, and we have the autopsy reports. There was forensic evidence gathered at the scene. We have all the information learned from the autopsy. Then we have the gun. We've tested someone who matches Stephanie and a similar gun and tried to reenact the scene and it didn't work, that she shot at herself. We told you we didn't believe it was a suicide. There's no evidence she fired the gun with her right hand. What we do have is what the medical examiner believes and the evidence shows is a defensive position with her left hand, meaning that there was some evidence showing that she was pushing the gun away from her with her left hand. That's one of the reasons we don't think it's a suicide. We're concerned with everything in total, the actual event, when the gun went off, when she died. Unfortunately, there's no one to back you up, that she came out and shot at you first. You handled the firearm on your own self-admission. The results from you handling it and gunpowder residue on your body and everything all comes from the fact that you were in an area when a gun went off, whether you shot it or whether she shot it, okay? So Russell kind of through all of this is like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like, because he's basically getting called out for lying a lot and the officer is finally like, no, your story does not make sense. Yeah. He basically goes on to say that like, with gunpowder residue on Russell and all this stuff, it would have been inconclusive because he readily admitted that he handled the firearm. So had he's basically saying, had you stuck with your first story that you struggled, that would have been maybe believable. But now you keep changing it, and now you're saying you weren't in the room, and that's just not believable. And so Detective Spoke says the medical examiner is under the opinion that it was a defensive posture she was in. How can you explain that? Yeah. And Russell just says, I can't. I can't explain that. And he says, again, you're saying she's right-handed and trying to pull the trigger like this. Must show him how. We have the trajectory. Everything appears that there was a struggle. So what happened? We just want the truth. If it's an accident, it's an accident. But Russell says he's been truthful, even though he's been clearly proven to lie throughout this whole thing. And the officers just tell him they're trying to give him this opportunity to help them. They believe he was truthful with them up to a certain point. They tell Russell that Stephanie cannot speak for herself and they have to represent her and her interests here. They also mention that Russell has canceled multiple appointments with them. They say they've tried calling him. He promised that he would give them his new phone, phone number, but he never returned to that. 
the officers say they've been over backwards to show that it was an accident for him and that they have no reason to doubt what they're what he told them initially but then he changed the story and now he's trying to convince them all that it was just she did it on her own the officer says normally when you forget things on selectively forgetting what happened you forget it from the very beginning you don't make up a story to say that you were trying to stop something you remember what happened when it's freshest and clearest in your mind right after the event one minute you're saying she was crumpled forward now you're saying she fell back on her back how do you explain forgetting all of this and he says he can't then they mention that he canceled a polygraph and that he's become uncooperative at this point Russell says that it's 12.40 p.m. on a Friday and he has a lot of stuff to do, so he's going to end the interview here. By October 20th, 1993, Detective Spokes and Investigator Serarvo had met with attorney C. Hastings in Hastings' office. He reviewed the case and he suggested to contact a psychologist to review Russell's statements and ask for an opinion. If no information was revealed after the review by the psychologist, then Hastings would consider the investigation complete and make a charging decision at that time. But nothing ever comes of it. Russell was never arrested. He went on to raise his daughter, the younger one, the preschool-aged girl. And the investigation was never oh closed. My. Yeah. So that's why Stephanie's daughter is here now, decades later, fighting for justice in her mom's case. That's where it le they literally just left it hanging. From 1993, it looks like they stopped. The only reason why there are supplementary reports or why the case file is added to year after year is because my aunt never gave up. She'd write every year. They don't want to talk to us. They, they just want us to go away. And even in the Fox News story, they say that it, they're quoted saying that the family has no interest in, in helping. That's a lie. They're only saying my sister has no interest in helping because of the trauma she's endured. Can you imagine? Give her a break. Yeah, it's not. They're classifying grouping the whole family just under my sister. The, it, the case does not just base on my sister, the little girl witness. There's other people involved that could give you context to that night and could help close the story, like my aunt, my dad, me. And they didn't want to interview any of us until we put them on blast. So I don't want to make the Sonora Police Department and the Yavapai County look stupid, but this is essentially what I have to do in order to get them to do their job. Light a fire under their ass. Oh, are they doing anything about it? So Sergeant M. Dominguez is an officer that has started looking into it again. June 15th, 2020, he met with Wendy, Stephanie's sister, at um, her home in Phoenix. And Wendy told him she strongly believes and has believed for all these years that Russell Peterson was responsible for Stephanie's death. And she did want the Sedona po police to continue investigating. And then Officer Dominguez also contacts um, Stephanie and Russell's daughter, who I refer to through the whole thing as CW. Um, she also lives in the Phoenix area and he found all these different addresses for her and he tried to contact the phone number he could find for her, but he wasn't able to get in contact for her for a long time. He wanted to discuss her conducting a confrontation call to Russell about the whole thing. So basically having her call her dad. Um, and on July 6, 2020, she was a able to call him back and she told him she would be willing to do this call and call Russell for the investigation. They set up a meeting 
but they he's never able to get a hold of her again. In fact, Nikki says when I interviewed her that her sister is missing and none of them know where she is. However, she does think that she's like missing on her own volition. Like she doesn't want to be found. Like she doesn't want to be involved in the investigation because she was raised by her dad after this. And probably doesn't think he did it. Yeah, so she kind of just dropped out of contact with everyone after this. And Nikki said still today in 2023, she hasn't heard from her. I was going to say, are they close? Yeah, she said they have been on and off, but she was raised by Russell. Nikki wasn't. And so they've like argued about the case before. She's missing Adams as of right now. I mean, her her given name is Christina. It's all over my TikTok channel. I talk about her. I, I put out TikToks that she's she's missing. She was in communication with the Sedona Police Department initially in 2020 for the reinvestigation. This is how, my sister is how I found out that re, they were reinvestigating because they called her because she's a witness as a four year old and they wanted to get her involved. That's they think that's the only angle to get him is my sister and like a confrontation call, which there is more we can prove the history, you know, just a little bit of money and we can do some reenactments and prove it. They just don't want to put money into it. So they're trying to take the easy route, which is get my sister involved, which is cool. Let's get my sister involved. The thing is, is that she was four when this happened. This creates such trauma. And initially she agreed to, to be involved. And then she's fallen off the face of the world. And I don't blame her. This is traumatic. I ran from it for 28 years and I don't blame her if she doesn't want to pop her head up out of the sand right now, because I've been on camera screaming about it for almost two years and I still can't find her so she I don't think wants to be found the Sedona Police Department told me to uh, file a uh, missing no no a welfare check down here in Phoenix I don't know where to send the the Phoenix police I don't it's been three years since she's been MIA I, I don't know my sister is missing we do need her and on every podcast I am reaching out to my sister who is given name is Christina but she likes to be called Kay just Kay girlfriend Kay if this podcast reach you if this one is on Kayla's podcast we need you once again I am sorry I am sorry for the shit that has gone down remember we have both had some trauma and we need you for this investigation and I just I need to have a good cry session with my sister it's been years let's just reconnect forget about the shit we've done to each other and let's just I need my sister he cut contact off with our side of the family so I told you about Disneyland, right? We were supposed to go to Disneyland in 1993. And after my mom died, the case was open and being investigated. So he got custody of his daughter and my dad got custody of me and we were separated for a year. And my family tried really hard to get her for the summer of 94, which Russell released her to us. Finally, we were able to see her a year later. There was a phone call. There was no, no contact with her, nothing. He cut her off from us because he was brainwashing her so in sitting in the cop car minutes after my sister will, all, will repeat it saying this is a memory in my head poppy killed mommy poppy killed mommy poppy killed mommy it's in the case file it's all over a year later i'll see my sister for disneyland 1994 we're finally together only without my mom and she'll tell me at disneyland that mommy killed herself i couldn't believe it i was like what i was it was my the summer of my 12th birthday and i've got my little sister telling me that mommy killed herself that was when we realized what was happening i feel bad for her imagine what she grew up with 
Oh, she grew up and started to realize. He kept her away from us. We saw her that summer of 94 and she told us that and that that blew up everything in our side of the family. And then she was kept away from us for about a decade. Uh, Letters were sent, pictures were sent, but that was in my 20s before I saw my sister again. (laughs) And and the only reason I saw her is because uh, she had ran away from Russell and was with, uh, because after my mom, Russell got got married to another woman he never got married to my mother but he got married to his next girlfriend had a son and then this lady immediately divorced him i think her name is diane divorced him but this woman because they had a son together was always in my sister's life so she became my sister's stepmom so i remember when i was in my 20s and i drove down there in my car to meet my sister for the first time she's like 14 and uh she had jet black hair because she was like oh my god she was all into goth and she's outside oh my god it was just Oh God, I mean, can you imagine what she's been through? But I remember for for a while, she was able to live with the Diane lady because she'd ran away from Russell and Russell let her live there. So that was time I got to connect with my sister. And I remember those times, those are fond memories. And I got to know the Diane lady because I would drive down there frequently on the weekends and hang out and she would confide in me of what Russell would tell her. And she would, she told me that that Russell would later confess to her what he did to my mother, that he did in fact murder her, that he started laundry before he called 911, that he took a shower before he called 911. Um, so the cops are aware that there are other people, like they just need to push harder and they don't want to. So I got to apply the pressure to make them do these interviews, to find this stuff, to put the man away. I mean, come on, do the due diligence. They just became aware of her because of all the information. They didn't want to talk to me. This is why I even got involved. The Sedona Police Department wanted to get involved only with my sister because she was a witness. They never wanted to talk to me. My sister's calling me in July of 2020 saying, hey, stuff's heating up with mom's case, but because we were feuding and I had was like, you know, snobby, I was like, I don't want to talk to you. And I didn't talk to her and she has not called me since. The stubborn, stubborn. And so I waited literally five months for, I was like, okay, stuff's heating up. I waited for cops to call me, Kayla. August, September, October, it's now November. And I'm like, okay, I remember I was at a client's house. It was over Thanksgiving. I'm like, what's going on with my mom's case? I had to email the Sedona Police Department to ask what was going on. That's when I found out that it was transferred to the information, contact information my sister had given me wasn't even relevant anymore. It had been transferred to another detective. So now I email her. She finally gets back to me after Thanksgiving and tells me, oh, I've been meaning to reach out to you and you've already answered my questions. You were asleep. Uh, that's literally, I sat back and was like, she doesn't want to talk to me. I realized that my mom was getting put back on a shelf. I had relevant information about what my dad knows, like all the stuff I knew. They, and, I, and I sat at my desk and I was supposed to go do a client. And I, and I remember being late for that client because I knew that this was pivotal. That it was like, I could either go on with my life of putting my head in the sand and ignoring what happened to my mom, or I could actually tag in and do something. And I remember sitting back, it took me about 45 minutes to compile a really lengthy email to her, letting her know that I did have relevant information about my mom and I wanted the case file. And that's when she gave me the link to the county records and boom, bing, 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 Nikki's in. And ever since then, like I've been hot on Sergeant Leon's email list. Like I am not going away. I will talk to all media, all press. Like finally I talked to city council and my mom's, my mom's case right now, right now, this day, it is active. If this was if this was January 1st of 2023 and we were having this podcast, it would be inactive. The only reason it's active is because I'm applying this pressure and I will not stop applying the pressure. She hopes that one day Russell will be tried for her mom's murder. Justice will come to him. Yes, because 
Stephanie's family feels very strongly that he did kill her. My mother did not commit suicide. In the case file, there's a lot of victim blaming and you're gonna get really mad because I know I was very upset when I read it for the first time. I had many panic attacks and I remember it took me several weeks to get through reading his lies and the interrogation. So it's just impacted me a lot throughout my whole childhood with people thinking that my mother killed herself. I just want that to be cleared up. Like once and for all, this was a domestic violence altercation dispute. My mother never grabbed a gun and I will prove this. And that's basically just what I want to leave your viewers with. Like I will prove, I will prove this. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I also research, write, and edit this show. Our co-host is Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser giver is Charlie Waters. And all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. If you haven't, please leave us a five-star review and share our podcast with your friends. If you or someone you know is suffering from domestic violence, there is help available. If you're in the United States, you can call the National Domestics Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233. You can also send them a text. Just text START, S-T-A-R-T, to 88788. Okay, guys, you can help Nicole out by going to her TikTok. It is Nicole Wasilishin, N-I-C-O-L-E-W-A-S-I-L-I-S-H-I-N. Make sure to go follow her TikTok and check out the petition she has for her mom. It is linked there on her TikTok. She has photos and videos all over of her mom. It's a great page to follow and show support. So please head over there.